You oftentimes have to turn off the television set, even for evening news. I turned it off a couple of times in the last week because of the reports of violence in Dallas or elsewhere. When I have to hear the latest shootout, the latest murder, the latest hostage crisis, the latest family situation where perhaps a frustrated ex-husband has tried to kill his ex-wife and her current lover. And of course, if that is not enough, we continually hear of serial killings, of mass murders. I think it was just the other night they had replayed this Charles Manson movie on television when they had shown all of the girls who are part of his so-called family who shaved their heads bald and put a little cross that they had etched on their forehead with a jackknife and began to chant and rave and rant to the judge and the jury, saying that they were going to get even. I think all of us know that eventually one of his family made an attempt on Gerald Ford's life, the President of the United States. This type of thing, of course, occurs all around us all the time. The Los Angeles police estimate that of every sixth automobile on the Los Angeles freeways, every sixth automobile contains one gun. That is, one out of six automobiles have a gun in them. And here are people getting into an argument, like the other day there was a fight outside of a bar about 2 a.m. in North Dallas, and someone ended up stabbed to death. Well, we have to hear of Raphael Septien, who allegedly has molested and perhaps raped a 10-year-old girl. Conflicting stories on that, but a national football hero, very well known, who was apparently looking at imprisonment with regard to some hideous aberration and some sexual lust that apparently had been concealed for much of his life. In Matthew 24, Jesus said one of the signs of the times in which we live, together with many other things that would be happening in the world, wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes. He said all this was the beginning of a time of trial, trouble, or sorrow, and we know that means the Great Tribulation, or a time of travail on the world in general. And he said in verse 10, a part of the hallmark of this day would be, Then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. Now, who was Christ talking about? Jesus was not talking about people in the world. He was not talking about atheists or pagan Greeks or Romans who did not believe in God. He was not talking about polytheists or people who believed in all sorts of gods or animism, witchcraft, or voodoo. When he said many shall be offended, he's talking about people who have already been converted and people who have understood the truth and who have come to understand the love of God and for some reason or another can become, quote, offended, end quote, get their feelings hurt, and begin then to adopt or to embrace certain attitudes, moods, or as we say, a spirit of mind or a mindset, which causes them to do what? To betray one another and shall hate one another. Now, of course, I have seen that up close in living action for more than eight years. I've had to deal with that inside the family. I've had to deal with that between close personal friends who I used to take on trips all the way around the world or all over the country or to other foreign countries and to go and sit by the hour looking at the coals and the embers of a campfire up in Colorado and enjoy hunting with them in the sea, that through fear, through misunderstanding, 
contempt, hatred, and a complete rejection of an individual who had been their friend could occur. It says, many shall be offended, and shall betray one another, and hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And look at the cause and effect in verse 12. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Probably you've never been aware of how much of a powerful influence the evil deeds of others can be around you. There is a scripture in the book of Proverbs that says, Be thou not envious of sinners. And that is a proclivity of the American people, I think, especially with our entertainment of today, with books and magazines and with the pornography that is so readily available in everything from 7-Eleven stores at the corner a drugstore or any magazine or bookstore, with the avalanche of absolute trash in the form of acid rock music, with this MTV idiocy and insanity of pictures of everything from train crashes to runaway buffaloes uh, to the tune of wild, insane music of, of insane African witch doctor beats and chants, which is supposed to be, quote, music, but which, in fact, is just a noise, a kind of a jangle, a kind of a frenzied, confused noise, which after a while just drives you absolutely up the wall. But when our modern entertainment as it has for literally decades, highlights murder, intrigue, divorce, triangles, uh, sadomasochism, homosexuality, lesbianism, serial killings. It is axiomatic that every time an individual is arrested for having killed or stabbed to death 11 to 23 people, that he is automatically going to be a multimillionaire while he is yet in prison because MGM and all the other people will beat a path to his doorway, and the writers that are professionals who ghostwrite great books and so on will beat a path to his doorway and get him signed up on a contract, and that will give him the money to begin to, of course, hire the most expensive defense attorneys in the United States who will probably succeed in getting him off. And in the meantime, they want his story. So, of course, they made a movie about Richard Speck, up in Chicago, who walked through systematically in a room of whimpering, frightened, screaming, crying young nurses, and with a butcher knife stabbed the life out of every one of them, one after another, in a bloody, wretched mess. And the world out here, our neighbors, our relatives, maybe some of you saw it, I don't know, I wouldn't have gone near the theater with a, uh, you know, a, a 22 caliber pistol in my pocket. I would have been afraid to darken the door. But they flocked, you know, by the hundreds of thousands into the theater to watch the bloody reenactment of Richard Speck as he stabbed to death all of those frightened young girls. And they made a movie out of it. So they made a movie out of Charles Manson. And no doubt, once they dispense with this Lucas, who apparently killed 26 or more people, are not sure, he keeps changing his story, but they'll make a movie out of that. Does it affect you? Does it affect members of God's church? I have to ponder how it is that people, including not just lay members, but ministers who stood in the pulpit and preached some these very same scriptures, many of which I'm going to read you later about love and love of the brethren and the kind of the life we ought to live, who would sit in counseling sessions and lecture people about getting their attitudes under control and being patient in tribulation and enduring trials and about their prayer life and on and on could become some of the most vicious and the most hateful human beings that you have ever known. 
ministers who literally have driven families apart, who have prohibited a member of a loving family from visiting with their own parents. Now, my father, as the head, the human head of that church organization, wherein many of these ministers still reside, had a different policy. Even though he had become estranged from my sister Dorothy for many, many years, and Beverly to a lesser extent for a shorter period of time, through much of his later years, he was quite warm and quite friendly toward them. When they came down to Pasadena, they stayed in his home. But he had put them out of his church organization many years before. But they were welcome in his home. They watched the Rose Parade standing arm in arm with my father out the front window of his own home on South Orange Grove Street in Pasadena, California. In the meantime, ministers under my father, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong, were forbidding members of a family to have anything to do with their own family members. Now, none of that makes any sense. But it does, I think, show evidence of what happens when people allow this mood of hatred which can be justified in the Bible, of course. Many people think it can't be justified in the Bible. Let me correct that. People can justify it in their own minds by twisting or perverting what they read in the Bible because they develop this us-them attitude. And many of them think that they are righteous and that the other people that they really hate, but they call it, no, uh, we will love them when they repent. Now, the minute they repent and they turn around, we will come to them. Then we love them. Well, this flies in the face of the favorite text of Dr. Graham most of the Protestant world, and hopefully of you and me too, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And in Romans where it says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. It is while we are yet sinners that Christ loves us. First, foremost, and always, Jesus Christ of Nazareth founded a church which is to reach out to the world. It is to love the world, and in fact, to love one's enemies. Everything Jesus Christ stood for is diametrically opposite to hatred, to an attitude of contempt, to a vain conceit of cynical disregard for a fellow human being of whatever race or religious belief or whatever political tenet or calling. And everything that we're going to see in one key scripture I want to wade through slowly in a few moments is the antithesis of human nature, and is in fact contrary to everything human nature seems to urge us to do. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, and I'll go over this rather quickly because this could be the subject, of course, of several sermons and for a long time, but I think we're aware of this. It says in verse 1, this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. And of course, total selfishness, total egocentricity is the vogue today. Covetous, and that is our society. I remember one time a picture, I haven't seen Mad Magazine for probably a decade, but somebody would pick up a copy and show me a cartoon in it. I never became a reader of Mad Magazine. I got to protect myself and explain that. But somebody showed it to me on one occasion, and this one little skit was several... Uh, you mentioned a comic strip, so I'll do the same thing. It was several pages, and it was really exemplary of the average American family, especially at Christmas time. 
It showed a family of dad and mom and about three children of varying stair step on down to about a four-year-old. And they're standing before this and that and the other store window. The first one was a furniture store, and it showed all kinds of furnishings. It's kind of like this show they have called Wheel of Fortune, where uh, people guess a word by certain letters, and then they go shopping, and they have this merry-go-round that comes through, and they just grab things, go for $1,200, I'll take that, and 1000 I'll take that, and I want this, and give me that, and so on. And they go away with thousands of dollars, a boat, and a car, and and a new dresser, and maybe a new carpet for the for the living room or whatever. Well, here were these people standing before a furniture store, and they were all saying with one voice, this big thing above their head, you know, that indicates they're saying it, I want. Next frame, they're standing before, I guess it was a toy store, and there are hundreds of items there for them to look at, and they're saying, I want. And it was page after page of every different kind of a store, the automobile dealership, I want, you know, and here was a boat store with some good-looking boats and uh, ski craft and all that in there. I want, and it really was indicative to me of what goes on in society. We know why, I think, basically, many people experience manic depression at Christmas time and why the 24-hour period of Christmas Eve to the end of Christmas Day is the highest in all the year for suicide. Because suddenly the glittering contrast, on the one hand, of this absolute avalanche of affluence, of pouring out, and all the advertisements on television, all the stores filled with shoppers just thronging the counters to try to get gifts for one another, and all the money being spent, and the hype of continually giving you all of this music and saying, you will, you are now commanded, and we have now insisted that you will experience compulsory joy. You are ordered to be happy because it's Christmas time. And not everybody gets as happy as they think they ought to be because they've had to take their Christmas bank account out of the bank. And sometimes they kind of begrudgingly spend that, especially if the washer and dryer gave out last month or the car broke down or they're overdue on their rental. But they think, well, I've got to say that Maud something because she'd get her feelings hurt. And all our politics enters into it. And so people kind of dip into manic depression. And they experience a very great low at Christmas time. I think we all know that covetousness is, says the Apostle Paul, idolatry. Anything that gets between us and our God is idolatry. And things can do that far more rapidly and easily than people. Just material possessions, things. Isaiah said concerning covetousness that they worship the things which their own hands manufacture. And that is absolutely true. Many people enjoy window shopping. I hate shopping of any kind. I never shop. It's, it's frustrating to my wife because I'll go straight to a store and I'll look at number 40 on the rack and say, I'll take that one and walk back out as quick as I can get back out of there. I cannot stand for a, a man to come over and start showing me all kinds of things and saying, now feel this cloth and all of that, and try to sell me something. Matter of fact, I've gone into many a store. If I want to just look around unmolested and just take my time and look through a rack, somebody comes over and says, can I help you? No, thanks. I'll leave. I'll, I'll leave, and then I'll come back when I can be alone and look at what I want. But many people like to window shop. They're like uh, the kids, you know, that you can throw a handful of chains in the backyard and the weeds if mom and dad want to be alone together. The kids are out there for three hours, 
It's like you can you can loose you can give a person a classic credit card or a checking account, a bank, I should say, a checkbook, and turn them loose in a department store, and they can spend the day when they've only got twenty five dollars spent. But the whole day can go by just looking at the merchandise. I can't stand it. I can't handle it. It drives me crazy. But the American way of life, the American commerce, which is completely, well, almost done away totally with a neighborhood store, has created the one-stop shop idea. Because every bit of it is around the, uh, the merchandising concept of impulse buying. If you ever really were to study the science that that has become of the supermarkets of having all the cigarettes and the gum and all kinds of magazines like the keyhole type publications of the scurrilous magazines and everything at the last moment, they're still trying to sell, sell, sell before they tally up the final when you get out of there. And everything is put within your reach and now they have supermarkets where everything from underwear to bananas is in the same store. You go in there, and you can buy anything from hardware, ball bearings, you can buy a boat or an automobile, or one of these motor-driven lawnmowers that you ride on, all the way to groceries in one store. And they're all huge, big cup rate stores. That is exactly the way people shop today, by impulse, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers. And of course, that's in vogue. Nobody ever is ashamed anymore of hearing men like Johnny Carson or anyone else take God's name in vain on television. Disobedient to parents, another hallmark of the time, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, headstrong or self-willed in other words, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness. Now, that seems to be a crazy uh, contradiction. As if a person could be possessed of all of those hideous, base, lustful passions, and yet still have a form of godliness. Well, I have never seen a survey on murder or on perhaps uh, drug addiction or perhaps burglary as to whether or not any percentage of them at all have been brought up in a church or as to whether or not any of them were members of a church. You never know when you hear that so-and-so was arrested for this and that. It doesn't say he was a Baptist or a Methodist or Episcopalian or Lutheran or an atheist or a Seventh-day Adventist. It doesn't tell you. But it'd be very interesting to know just how many people can actually go into church on one day of the week and be out busily burglarizing somebody the next few days of the week, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. They deny really that God exists, that he is alive, that he is able to intervene in our personal lives. From such, turn away. Over in the twelfth chapter of the book of Romans is a chapter of the Bible which is, I think, in one short chapter, perhaps most exemplary of the teaching of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You have to read up to this as to why Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, because all of the 11th chapter and that which goes before, including the marvelous 8th chapter of Romans, which is 
like a Bible within a Bible that shows the entire plan and program of God, leads up to what Paul is saying toward the conclusion of this book. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, he's writing to the lay members of the church in Rome, which was a congregation of people largely made up of Jews, but also a lot of Gentiles, in the large city of Rome under a, an emperor who was a bloodthirsty beast, of course, and a very, very horrible time in many ways, not unlike the time in which we live today, where prostitution was out in the open, where crime of every sort was beginning to really beleaguer and plague the empire, and where the pagans who believed in gods that attended orgies uh, did not have the morality of a Christian society whatsoever. So, of course, everything that the Roman citizen saw around him had to have a similar effect of eroding the belief in Almighty God and his laws, as does, I think, the average church-going member of God's church, if he isn't aware of it, have an erosion, a constant wearing down of his commitment to Christ and of his desire to obey God, of his prayer life, of his commitment to God's church, just by being, in a sense, a part of the world without really meaning to be a part of the world. Most of us feel that we have come out of the world, but we also have the world invited in through the one-eyed monster and through every piece of literature that comes in our post office box and we're out rubbing shoulders with people in the world, and many of our friends are people who are in the world. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So the day of sacrifices is not over. But we do not now offer a dead sacrifice. We don't kill a lamb on the Passover Eve, as did the ancient Israelites, but we offer our own selves, our whole being, our body, as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God. Now let's pause a moment and insert our own names. I'll insert mine, you insert yours there. Are you, as you are here today, in the thoughts that you have thought in the last week since last Sabbath, in the manner in which you present your body, the care in which you with which you perhaps fix your hair, uh, you bathe your body, you clothe yourself, you dress up because you realize you're going to appear before someone who is important to you. I would dare say that some of us uh, would perhaps be a little more careful if I were able to announce, for example, this week, that next week uh, Governor Clements is going to be right here in this little building in this little, little-known church down here on South Broadway in Tyler, Texas, and he is going to speak to all of us. And the lieutenant governor will be here, and our own representative from this district, and on and on, a state senator or two, Peyton McKnight perhaps will be here. Of course, he would be if Governor Clements is going to be here. And Governor Clements is going to speak to this crowd. We'd all be excited. Many people would take extra care to appear before Governor Clement. Well, my point is that we are to appear before God. Are we literally giving ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, presenting ourselves to God as if here, God, this is something I know you'll want. 
I mean, most of us really can't come to the place to where we can really say that. We first have to come to the place to where we, we wonder whether or not God is interested, whether God really wants us at all. As a matter of fact, I think we know that we have to come to the place where we're fairly sure he doesn't want us, that we're not worthy of his notice or his, of his attention, which is a process called conversion and repentance until we can have the Holy Spirit which will begin to change us and make us presentable before God. Which he says is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. Now, what does that really mean? I mean, how are you conformed to the world? The ladies wear dresses, the men wear split pants and jackets and ties. That's conformity to the world. I know that many religions will actually take issue with that and will construct a doctrine around nonconformity, meaning some sort of a regulation uniform for the church. Women's ought to, women ought to wear bonnets, men ought to wear flowing robes and, and big black bushy beards. And there are churches that believe that type of thing. Jesus Christ made it very clear when he said that you would need go out of the world if you could not fellowship with people whatsoever in the world. Paul also said that, that Jesus Christ said that if you are of the world, the world will love his own, but because I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. And he said that the world would hate you because of what you believe, what you stand for, the way of life that you are living, not necessarily the way you appear. There are many, many worlds. Most of us, when we see that word, we think of worldliness, meaning the sinning carnal world of avarice and of greed, the world of crime, the world of Hollywood entertainment that I had been describing, the world that is evil that we saw described in 2 Timothy 3.1, and people who are of that mentality in the world. But there are many, many worlds. There are worlds within a world. If you dive very deeply over into the world of literature, for example, or very deeply into the world of art, or of music, or of science, there's now a new science, you know, computer science, and so on, and there are people who can become very, very narrow, and can become very skilled in a particular narrow little field, and they will understand a certain jargon and talk in a certain language that would be absolutely mystical to you. You wouldn't know what they're talking about. A couple of people who perhaps labor at JPL and high-tech could get together and be talking about the latest uh, moonshot or whatever, and they would be using language that you wouldn't understand at all. So there are different worlds. There is also, though, and many people haven't thought of this, the world of religion. When it says, be not conformed to this world, I've noticed in my more than 32 years now in Christ's ministry, and a lot longer than that, in association with God's church, that many people never truly come out of the religion, the, the world of religion, the religious world that they left behind. I've known personally many people who were perhaps for 15, 20 years in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And they just could not shake certain things that had been deeply ingrained in their minds. And even though they came over into God's true church, they brought with them a lot of concepts 
that they simply never really got rid of. Same thing is true of a Baptist background, or a Catholic background, or a background of some other religion. I've often puzzled about the writings to the churches in the book of Revelation, because actually the Spirit does not address the human head of the church, nor does the Spirit address the laity of the church. But in each case it says, unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, or under the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. Many years ago, when I was studying some of the Eastern and Oriental religions and some of the other religions of early United States, such as the Quakers, and they got that name from the shaking and the quaking that they did in wild aberrations because of a charismatic movement and tongue-speaking. As a matter of fact, most of the early colonial American churches were charismatic. And there are accounts of women with long tresses so long that the violence with which their heads were snapped back and forth, actually, you could hear the cracking of their hair. Now, this would literally break a normal human being's neck, but the throes of demoniacal, and I think uh, that's exactly what it was, uh, charismatic meetings that took place in the American frontier were something to behold. If you've ever read or seen a picture of Madame Blavatsky, of the Theosophy Society, or the Fox Sisters, and all of the poltergeists and the rappings and tappings and the weird religion that they got into, you would know a little bit about that in early America. And I think that because we see that there is an angel that Almighty God said was over each one of those seven churches, I'm not going to further then say that there is a particular angel over some era and that the angel himself has a particular personality which finds its expression through those people, because I don't believe that. But I do know that in some of the research I did, especially with regard to theosophy, and I've got to say it, it's really happened, it was published in magazines, in Seattle, Washington years ago, they were having a big art show, and a guy who was like a janitor in the museum worked in a metal shop. And when they were making various bolts and washers and so on, they would take an acetylene torch, and they had a big old plate of metal, and they would cut various pieces out of this metal. Well, finally they threw it away, and it was lying over there in the corner. And here's this weird-looking piece of metal with beads of metal all over it, having to just cut to bits and ribbons and pieces and all kinds of strange shapes. Just a piece of junk. Well, he took it in there at night and made a nice wood pedestal for it and everything and set that thing up, and it won the prize. In, in the show of this art in this museum. And it actually hit the newspapers back, I think, in the late 50s or early 60s. And it was in national papers and everything. I saw that. It was a crazy-looking thing. And the guy was dumbfounded when it won first prize. And people thought that was art. Well, I still believe that there are evil spirits that are actually over some of the churches in this world and that do set the doctrines and the moods and the various types of clothing and hairstyles and dress styles that are put upon people. So there is more than just a world that is the worldly world of sinners and a crime that we are to avoid when we're not to be conformed to this world. We have to think back to our own roots and realize that we are a product. But he says, be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
Is there ever a time when you are to stop proving all things? I know that the parent church was told in no uncertain terms, both in print and very thunderously orally, that they were not to prove anymore because what they were to do was to prove, first of all, where is God's true church? And they compare and they follow a process of naturally just eliminating the ones that are non-Sabbatarians and the ones that have the false doctrines and don't have the right name and don't understand the key to prophecy and on and on. And finally, they prove where is the church through whom and so on in which God is working. And once they do that and they prove that the physical leadership of that church are God's ministers, then from then on they don't question and they don't ask and they don't prove anymore because you're supposed to do that before you come into the church. And of course all of them said, oh, well, I guess that's right. And they just quietly went along with that. And that was the end of that story. And that became the doctrine. And that is now the set doctrine. That's the way it is in the worldwide church of God. You don't prove anymore. Now, to whom did the Apostle Paul write when he wrote to the Thessalonican church, Thessalonian church in Thessalonica? He wrote to the laity. He did not write to outsiders. He said in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, we give thanks to God always for you all, all of them, the local lay membership. Now, in the fifth chapter of that same letter, he told the church, all of them, the local lay membership, quench not the spirit, verse 19, despise not prophesying, meaning preachings as well as foretelling of events. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good. Now, who had tried those who say they are apostles over in Revelation in the second chapter when he wrote to the church at Ephesus and said, I know thy works and thy patience, thy labor, and how you cannot bear them which are evil. And you have tried them, you, the local church membership, already in the church, but still proving, still testing, still questioning, still comparing with Scripture. You have tried them which say they are apostles. How did they try them? Now, first of all, let's go back one step further. Who said they were apostles? The world? No. Some other church? No. The other apostles? No. The local lay membership of that church in Ephesus? No, they didn't say it. Another group of delegates from far off Jerusalem who came and announced it? No. Who said they were apostles? Why, they did. Man walks up and says, I'm an apostle. Now, I had a chance to do that just recently. I think Brad Stinson knows who I'm talking about because he's had some problem writing this guy, too. But we had a fellow that showed up, and I think he was he's supposed to be a prophet to the apostles, isn't he? I don't know. He, he's got some kind of an office. He claims where he's just one step above uh, prophets and apostles and evangelists. He lectures and preaches and teaches to them. Of course, he can't feed his family, but that's another problem. He had not worried about that. 
That's just one of the qualifications, one of these lesser people, like a bishop or an overseer of the church, to be the husband of one wife and teach your kids. But anyway, he believes that he's an apostle. Oh, it didn't take me very long to try and to compare with Scripture and to find out whether or not he was obeying God's law, whether or not he spoke according to this word, which if he does not, there is no light in him, whether or not he was accepting the responsibility toward his wife and his grubby, underfed, malnourished, cold little children. He just wasn't accepting any of those responsibilities, so it didn't take me very long to find out whether or not, not only is he not an apostle, he's probably not even a real Christian, if you know the truth. So I tried by comparing with Scripture what the man was doing, his lifestyle, how he was living, how he was not caring for his own family, what he said and what he wrote. Now this church at Ephesus is congratulated, the local lay membership, for trying them which say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. So you still try, you test, you, you test, I'm sorry, you probe, you ask questions, you look into the Word of God, you compare the way a man lives, you compare the way he speaks, the way he writes, what he does, his lifestyle, and the fruit, which is what results from his life with the Word of God. In the 11th chapter of Matthew, I'm going to hurry over there just for a moment, you will see an example of how Jesus Christ pointed to the works that were done. He could have pulled himself up on his high horse if he'd have been a human being of great pomp and vanity, which he was not, when he was given what appeared to be a sort of a slap in the face by the apostles of John. Now, John was in prison, so you get the time setting. And John was in fear of his life and was about to be beheaded. Jesus Christ had not made any mention of John, but was going about the business of preaching the gospel. John, no doubt, thought Christ would show up and deliver him from jail. There's no telling what might have gone through John's mind. Surely he was spending time in prayer. Surely he knew about the great ministry of Jesus Christ, which he himself predicted would eclipse his own and it expected that Christ would come to perhaps get him out of jail. It says in verse 1, It came to pass when Jesus submitted him commanding his twelve disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John, and he was in the house, by the way, you can see that in Matthew 9 and verse 10, and also in Mark, the second chapter. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Strange way of putting it. It almost sounds as if they had their feelings hurt, and they really were sort of trying to get a message across to Jesus. Are, are you really him, or are you just an imposter, and should we go look for somebody else? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk, and lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Today, in this age of God's church, there are practically none of those miracles being done that I know of. I have never known of a dead person being raised. 
I have never known of a blind person totally blind suddenly receiving her sight. I have heard of cases of people with cataracts that have been healed. I cannot document it, and I have no reason to doubt it. I will believe it if people say so. But I tend to be a little bit skeptical unless I know or I've had some personal acquaintance with the people because there are an awful lot of people in the world that are charlatans and frauds when it comes to do with faith healing. And I have seen cases of healing, and I've seen cases of non-healing. Having two deaf sons and having prayed and fasted and prayed and had dozens of other people pray and my father to anoint them, I don't know how many countless times, and many other ministers anoint them in their early age when they were two, three, five, six, eight years of age and have them never to be healed. Yet having my wife who was carrying one of those deaf children in her womb have a rupture healed just very, very quickly, which was visible and evident to our sight, and have that healed miraculously, well, that's a strange uh, irony. I don't quite confess to be able to understand perfectly why. One thing threatened her life and that of the baby, but the child itself was partially defective in the sense of not having the sense of hearing. Jesus pointed to all of these great works that were being done, that lepers were cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And he said in verse 6, notice, and why did he say it? Blessed is he, saying this to John's disciples, whoever shall not be offended by me or in me. He told John's disciples, and blessed is whoever is not offended in me. Perhaps by something he had omitted to do that John thought he should have done. You can only understand this in the correct context if you continue to read the entire lecture that he proceeded to give all those in the hearing unless they understand, misunderstand what he said about John. Then he goes on to say, well, what did you expect to see concerning John? A reed shaken with a wind? A person who bent with every breeze, who just gave in willy-nilly, or a person of great strength? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? As if the people had listened to what some of the disciples of John had said, become a little bit miffed or offended for Jesus, for Jesus' apparent ignoring of John the Baptist, and Jesus then begins to defend John. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there is not risen or greater than John the Baptist. But I want to remind you that John performed not one single miracle. There is no account of John the Baptist healing anyone or being used to heal a soul. John the Baptist never spoke in tongues. Yet many people will tell you that unless you speak in tongues, you cannot be saved. You can't really be a true Christian. There is none greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now back to the twelfth chapter of the book of Romans. He says, beginning in verse 3, I say through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Self-appraisal is not easy. Sometimes if you're about to perhaps put together a resume to try to get a job, you're forced to go back and lose your education and put down the amount of education you've had and the various jobs you've held and why you left that job for a different one and so on and all the vital statistics. 
But most of the time, by and large, we do not appraise ourselves and think of ourselves in exactly that manner that someone else might view us. I forget the uh, quotation out of the old poem about the gift he gives to see ourselves as others see us. That's the only part that I remember, but I think that it is one that certainly has a great deal of meaning. For as we have many members in one body, and all members have not the same office, and the word office I looked up this morning, by the way, in the Greek means service. It does not mean rank or status, but it has to do with function, meaning service that we perform. So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and every one members one of another. Having then gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy all in italics, but that is implied according to the proportion of faith, or ministry on ministering. The others are italicized. Let us wait on our ministering, meaning serving, helping. He that teaches on teaching, or he that exhorts on exhortation. He that gives, let him do it with simplicity, or as it says in the original, with generosity or alacrity. He that rules with diligence. He that shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now, you can't imagine somebody being the mercy shower of a congregation. So let me hasten to say that this is not telling you ranks or various status symbols that are appointed to people within a local congregation where someone says, well, I'm going to be the exhorter. But I've known people like that in church. They seem to be naturally ebullient, enthusiastic, and they are more of a live wire than most other people, and they're the kind of a person who would be at the door to greet and to help people get acquainted. They'll be one of the first people to make welcome a brand newcomer to church for the first time, and that's really all that Paul is saying here. If you have a natural gift, if your personality is outgoing, well, use it in God's church. If you tend to be a person who can uh, contribute in music, do that. If you tend to be a person who thinks all you can do is go down and buy a couple little cards every now and then or jot down that telephone number you were given a while ago of a lady who uh, is up here in uh, Tyler who has lost a very dear loved one and need to give her a call on the telephone, and that's what you can contribute to one very, very forlorn and hurting person, then do that with, with diligence and with cheerfulness. Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cling or cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. Every one of these qualities of action toward a fellow human being, within or without the church, as far as that's concerned, flies directly in the face of human nature. This is not something which can be faked. Old people can perhaps put on a joyful face for a period of time, but there is no way to kid people over a long period of time that you really do genuinely care for them, and there's certainly no way to kid God. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope. And when it's time that you have hope and things are looking up and things are going along a little better, it's time to rejoice. Patient in tribulation, and things are not so good, and you've got a trial and trouble. You just say to yourself, well, this also will pass and a better day is coming, and I'll just wait this out. This will soon be behind me. It is, uh, what was that old song that I think Merle Haggard had, if we make it through December? 
A lot of time people think that. They, they've got to set an intermediate goal lest they do get into what's called manic depression and just sort of give up and become suicidal. They've got to say, well, it's going to be next month, and then it's going to be next year, and the old world is turning, and this also will pass. And soon I will look back on this problem, this tribulation, this heartache I'm suffering, and it will be gone. And I will be able to look at it with greater equanimity and, and greater objectivity, and I won't be bothered by it anymore. Continuing instant in prayer, meaning never ceasing to pray. Now, Mr. Dark touched on that last Sabbath, that there are times when you desperately need to pray, and that is the very time when you tend not to, because you feel unworthy. But that's the way to begin a prayer. Begin a prayer by saying, How dare I take your name in my mouth, O Lord Eternal? But I have nowhere else to go. Remembering what Jesus told Peter, and Peter told Jesus, Lord, to whom shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. Where else are you going to go? If you cannot go to God in prayer, where will you go to get the help you need? You won't find it out here on the street. You won't find it among your neighbors in this world. And oftentimes you have difficulty finding it even among close friends who don't always understand the yearnings of your own heart. So you never quit praying, even though sometimes you might let down. You might be in a valley rather than the peak of your life, your prayer life, your spiritual life. But you continue instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints, and certainly what we heard today when we're reminded of people who desperately need our prayers, people who need a card, a bouquet of flowers, an expression of sympathy, a simple telephone call let alone getting on your knees with their name before you and saying, Father in heaven, remember this person and put a few moments of your own life and your heart and your mind into it and really mean it and really feel it during that time for that poor, distressed person. Given the hospitality, bless them which persecute you. Now, that is really going to be a tough one there. Bless and curse not. I know that when I was ousted from my father's side, I was told months later that all of the reasons that were given were, quote, the last straw, end quote. And it reminded me of a sermon that I had preached many years earlier about the famous statement, that did it. That was the title of my sermon, that did it. And I took our listeners all the way through a whole lot of various human scenarios where the husband and the wife are fighting, but finally she says something about his brother, or finally he says something about her sister, and that did it, you know, and then we really go to blows. Now we got a real fight on our hands. Or we go through all kinds of situations involving employee-employer, and the employee finally just takes a cup of water and throws it in the boss's face, and the boss hits him right in the chops. That did it. Or we go to this and that and the other scenario, and finally tempers flare, and it's all through. Now there's no more intellectual discussion, there's no more arguing or reasoning. That did it. And so we use the expression of the old fable of how they began to load the camel with one straw, and then two straws, then ten, and then finally about 156,000. And theoretically, and of course it's a weird story, they drop the one last straw, and the camel's back goes creak and breaks. And so, as the fable goes, the straw that broke the camel's back is the last insult that just did it. So then I had them think about Jesus Christ in the night that he was beaten, 
And which one of the whip flashes, or just which exact position of the cat and nine tails that the great big burly Roman was thrashing him across the eyes, was it when it ripped the skin off his right eye, or when it bloodied his nose and laid it open to the bone, or was it when they, they ripped the flesh off his back or his chest, and was it when he was first laid down on the stake and the nails were driven through his wrists and his feet, was it the second blow of the big mallet or the third blow? Was it when they hoisted it up in the air and it ripped on the flesh and he hung there dying? Or was it when they cursed him and were gambling for his own garments while he was there naked for the whole world to see dying in agony? Where was the straw that broke Christ's back? What was the last insult, the spit in the face, the insults that he was illegitimate bastard, as they called him continually all during the day, they tormented him all through that long night? said you're an illegitimate child of an old uh, character, that old codger that had to go off and die somewhere, and called him every evil name, and heaped everything that he never did or thought, because they made him out to be the worst sinner the world had ever seen. They said, oh, this man is guilty of this and that, he was going to destroy the temple, but that's the mildest thing they said about him. What was the straw that broke the camel's back? There never was one. And of course, by the time we finished that sermon, I think we'd all agreed that there is never a time when if we literally consider what our Savior went through, that we human beings, let alone a member of our own family, or a beloved brother in the church, but even a person in the world, literally a Christian, believe it or not, is the kind of a person whose emotions are incapable of flaring up into hatred and violence and anger because he has them so completely subject, so completely presented as a living sacrifice, and not conformed to this world, but completely conformed to Jesus Christ, that he simply will not respond that way. And that's unnatural. That is not normal. It's not human. It is not natural. It is not normal to recompense to no man evil for evil, but to recompense good. He says, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lies in you, live peaceably with all men. Now, when it doesn't lie within you, then you're not at peace if your neighbor is attacking you, or someone else is attacking you, or speaking evil of you. Apparently, I was told by Charlie Gross that there was a gentleman in the worldwide church who stood up in a pulpit a couple of weeks ago somewhere over in North South Carolina, I forget where, don't even know his name, I never knew the man, who was explaining that Joe Tkach is now an apostle. And he felt called upon, as he explained, that Joe Tkach is an apostle to just viciously rip into me with every sort of epithet and hideous, rotten, dirty thing he could think of to say. And I didn't even want Charlie to tell me what he said because it makes it all that more difficult to forgive him. It's easier for me to stand here and say, Father, forgive that man. He doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know me. His judgments concerning me are absolutely wrong. But, you know, it does tell me something about the man, doesn't it? as I'm reading through the scriptures here of the way we are to conduct ourselves, even toward our enemies. But it's much easier, of course, to forgive if you don't know the depth of the evil that someone has heaped upon you, and the depth of the evil, if you do finally know it, makes it more difficult to forgive, but you're still supposed to forgive. You're still supposed to simply answer back peaceably, inasmuch as possible, inasmuch rather as lies within you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place under wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Eternal. 
And you can bank on that. That is your faith. That is your hope. You can say, well, you can actually feel compassion toward a human being who someday is going to suffer the vengeance of God. As Paul said in Hebrews, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But you know, if you were actually to be so horribly put upon by another human being that you should ever have resisted under blood striving against sin, you would have learned a lesson that perhaps would have stood you in good stead when it's merely a matter of slipping into a hurtful mood because of words or harmful actions of some human being. I can agree with the Apostle Paul who wrote to us in the 12th chapter of Romans that you have not resisted unto blood striving against sin. I've never yet had somebody come up and stab me. No one has ever yet shot me in the side with a revolver. The guy was carrying a gun and trying to do it one time, I think, at Lake of the Ozarks, or so they told me. But that's never happened. I've never had someone split my lip or bloody my head or something because of the faith or because of what I preach or teach. How will I respond if that happens to me? If I were to respond with anger and rancor and hatred and answering back, when all someone uses is words. Remember our little childhood thing that we used to say, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never harm me. And of course, it just drove the other kid wild when you said that. They didn't like you to repeat that. And all children learned it, but it's true. Therefore, if your enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, you shall heap coals of fire on his head. And be careful of your motive, because that's not your motive. Our old human nature can say, yeah, that's the way to get him. Treat him nice, but do it, you see, with an evil motive. No, the evil motive would make it of no effect at all. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You can see why I say the 12th chapter of the book of Romans is almost like a summarization of the teaching of Jesus Christ, because practically everything we read in this chapter, and it is so full and so rich and has so much instruction and so few words, is totally contrary to human nature. It is enough that we in this church, once every week, come together on the Sabbath to be reminded of the kind of people we should be. But I'll tell you, it's a good thing the Sabbath comes only seven days apart, because as we read in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 1, in this world it comes crushing in on us and forcing itself on our attention continually. Even as Jesus said, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. It's something just short of a miracle that we all retain the love for each other and for God and for Jesus Christ through just one week at a time.